Hi, I'm George Tekmachov here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Eastern Target Archery Podcast. Steve, how you doing, man? Doing real good. How about you? I don't know. I've got my Arrowhead water here. What's the deal? What's up with that? Arrowhead water is the worst of the bottled waters available in the United States of America. It used to be, you know, so here's what gets me, okay? Arrowhead water was originally named for Lake Arrowhead in California. Look at the label on this thing. Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, but look closer. Proudly sourced in Colorado. Colorado. So we got Arrowhead water, which hmm. is supposed to come from California, that was sourced in Colorado, being sold by a company from Connecticut. Well, this one's actually better than the old Arrowhead water. So Maybe because the Colorado Springs might be better? Yes. Uh, Ruby Mountains, too. It's a pretty popular place. So, yeah, I'm going to take back a little bit of what I said, but Arrowhead was like one of the few waters where you drink it and somehow you're thirstier. No, I'm still getting a little bit of that metallic aftertaste. Mm. It's not terrible, though. It's okay. You know what I've done lately? I've got those Mio liquid yeah. water enhancer things. I'll yeah. put a squirt of that in the bottle. And you can just about drink pond water with that stuff in it. You know, uh, one time I did I did go ahead and drink the pond water with that, and it was just fine, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you got to toughen your system up. You know, it's like parents today. They don't let their kids plant enough dirt. So you hear about all these, you know, issues people have. Gluten-free this yeah. and gluten-free that. So, so I'm at the uh, World Field Championship this past week, and I'm working with this new producer, and he's on this hyper-vegan diet, gluten-free. Everything's got to be gluten-free. I, I just had to walk away. Good luck in Yankton. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yankton, they appreciate you if you order extra gluten. I would if I could, and MSG as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was... That's a Seinfeld uh, joke if anyone watches. Yeah, exactly. Kramer orders extra MSG. I actually made a list on the whiteboard for us to cover certain things. I don't know. You didn't have a chance to review it, so there it is. We Yeah, we got to get to the World Cup final, that's for sure. Yeah, but to start out... Uh, world Field, um, some pretty interesting performances. Dave Cousins, rock star. Yeah, Dave got the W uh, for a third time. Uh, Nico, Nico did great. Nico almost had the trifecta. Yes, he almost had all of the available in championships the same, in the same. You know, in the same. You would have held three hundred and sixty-five degree kind of three hundred sixty-five day. Yeah. Period. You know. I mean, yeah, yeah was, he would have been reigning champion in all of them. Correct. But Dave disrupted that uh, in a big way. Yeah. Paige and Toya shot real a heck of a match. They both shot like a boss. Yeah, it was um, it was a pretty poorly attended event. That was the sad part of it. Yeah, you, you know, know. like man, you gotta. I don't. I, it made me think. I'm gonna ruffle feathers here, but um, field archery, being that it's really not contested here in the U.S., probably shouldn't be held in a championship form here in the U.S. Uh, and you know. I say U.S., but I, I'm talking about probably North America okay. more so. But you don't have many participants like you do Europe. 100%. You're right. However, you've got to give credit to Bruce for stepping up to have the event. Yeah, I think I'm, part of the issue was yeah. they, couldn't, they couldn't get a venue. And I heard, well, they had awarded them the event before COVID. So it was happening, like before the world got disrupted. Yeah. But I heard the courses were awesome. I don't think it's an event thing. The event was probably fine. It's not the issue for participation being down. I mean, if you look at the numbers from Italy and from uh, Dublin before, they were, I think Italy was about 
100 more people and Dublin is about 200 more people. Yeah, and this one would have been about 60 more people or so. Had it not, yeah. Had they not eliminated some of the yeah. championship categories due to the early registration numbers. Right, and then they're, I, yeah. They're really, because that, that kind of screwed Bruce, that situation. Yeah, that did screw Bruce. And then just the fact of traveling to the U.S. right now is extremely expensive. Yeah, because if you're, here's the deal. I'm going to Japan next week. It's like I got a 50% discount it's on basically everything. free. Well, not exactly, but. They're paying you to go. Almost, but not quite. <laughs> you know, you've got a situation where, um, you know, I was just looking at my passport and my old passport yesterday, my old, old passport, you know, that was before the one I've got right now. Passport I have right now is from 2017, was issued in September of 2017. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have 14 Japan entry stamps in that passport. That brings my total to something like 122 visits to Japan since 1994. So it's like four a year for, yeah. for that amount of time. And then this three year period when I haven't been able to go, right? It's a lot of Japan, man. It is. But, uh, yeah, going to be uh, doing some seminars and uh, talking to shooters and stuff. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the point being, you're, you know, the strength of the dollar makes that trip cheap for you. It makes the trip over here to Yankton very expensive very. for everybody else. And it's just a proximity thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, everyone in Europe shoots world field. Right. Here we shoot NFA field. You hold a tournament in Europe, you're going to get a lot more participants. Yeah. That's just how it is. No, you're absolutely correct. And plus, it's it's not a whole lot. lot coming from North or South America. So just do it or in Asia. Europe. Just do it in Europe from now on. You know, Japan had a team, and um, I can't. Oh, and uh, Mongolia. Mongolia had a team. Hmm. I that was know. it for Asia, as far as I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, field archery. Not. I mean, Japan is probably the strongest field archery country in Asia. But in general terms, yeah. Not a right. ton of it. Not a ton. But it was a well-done event from the standpoint of a couple of things, and it was a terrible event for me personally because, once again, <laughs> in their infinite wisdom, whoever's laying out the fields, and this comes from WA, this doesn't come from the organizers, uh, they set it up so I could not see any targets at all. And I've got a commentary, you know, um, on the field. But you can't see the targets. So they're like, well, just use the monitors. The problem is... The camera guys hadn't covered field archery before. They don't know ninety percent of the time they were either not on the target when the archer shot, or they brought up the wrong target. Yeah, and that's tough. That's the only way I was able to call arrows. I gave my binoculars to Gaba from Ian Sale. Mm -hmm. Gaba walked out there behind the archers for each round and started calling them over the radio. Mm. That's tough because. It's not necessarily, I don't know, you, you can't say it's the camera guy's fault. He's never done it. But, you know, was there any training? Probably not. No. Was there an understanding of, you know, hey, you need this. In, this is what needs to be seen. I don't know. So you got a producer who needs to be handling as well. Yeah. It's just tough. you got to have everyone, you know, kind of on board with what needs to be done. And you've yeah. done a lot of on-site events and for a lot of these people it's probably their first one yeah could be but it was not world archery's first one true 100 percent. now to be fair i think their main focus is what's going on coming up in tlachkala 
Tlaxcala, according to Linda. So I talked to four people from Mexico. Were they from the South? No, but they were all from different parts of Mexico and they all said it differently. Yeah. So I had to do this voiceover for Chris Wells. I chose to hybridize. <laughs> Just kind of gave it your own spin, huh? I, I kind of gave it, kind of gave it my own spin, and it sounded the video that World Archery put together sounded like this. They've earned the right to step into the arena one last time. the best the season had to offer. Those who, when the pressure was on, found that extra edge. They're winners, but not yet champions. Eight enter the arena in Tlachkala. In Tlachkala. <laughs> <laughs> It's the best I could do on short notice. Well, you got, I don't know. No one knows, apparently. Nobody knows. Everyone's saying it different, and they're all from there, so. I would go with what a local calls it. Yeah. But I don't know anybody from there. It's a place and It's the, the Yankton of Mexico. Well, it's even different. Like, the Mexican people joke about it. You know, they say stuff like, they'll be like, oh, we're having the World Cup final in Tlaxcala, and they'll be like, what's a Tlaxcala? You know, they say it like that make jokes yeah. and act like it's a, a I don't know a verb or a, a thing adjective or, you know they, they throw it everything at it but what it actually is so. okay well you know every country has got their regional biases people from the south like to make fun of Yankees and vice versa that yeah. sort of thing yeah everyone and everyone says stuff different and it's just how it is you're absolutely correct Anyway, World Field, um, interesting event. I believe that that's the first World Field we've had in the United States in a long time. Mm. I mean, we're talking decades. I have never heard of one being here. Yeah, we've had them here before, but it was, you, know, you got to go back to the 60s. So. Yeah. So, I don't know, cool event, though. It looked like, you know, they set up different field courses. Yeah. I uh, did hear that after that, though, they moved it down to the flat ground behind the NFA Center, which... Not very flat, though, because it was yeah. down in the in the sort of swale down... Yeah, but nothing down. there is that steep. Like, no. there's not a meter cut anywhere on that course. So what they did do, what Bruce did, was he set up a cherry picker with the final target. Oh, yeah, I'm talking... I was talking for the rounds to get to the finals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That cherry picker was my idea. Yeah, I've heard that. I had a little different idea. I told him... Run it up there with a pulley system and figure out a way to keep it straight, right? So it might have to go up a pole or something. And you'll know you've got it back in the same... You basically tie a flag to the rope, and when that flag is matching another flag on the ground, you're there. Just an indicator. Uh, they did it, you know, a different way, but effective. Very effective. So I didn't hear what the angle was on that. It was a 35-meter target at a 60... About 30-something degrees. Yeah. Maybe a meter cut. That's what I'm thinking. Like uh, an awful lot of people cut more. Yeah, you could tell people were missing low like crazy. Low and left. Yeah, I looked at it and I'm like, that's uh, it's not far enough to get a lot of cut on it. Correct. I have to run. I have to find my old picture of my. But people saw cut it. Info. People saw it, and you could see them reaching down, and 
yeah. and giving their sites a bunch of clicks, and it's like, ay, 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 that's not the right plan there. And in fact, I wonder how many people used the technique, because they didn't change the target faces every time. How many people weren't looking at the holes that were already in there? <sighs> no one, apparently. Because it was almost, I mean, maybe yeah, 5% of the holes were above the center line. That was what we said, you know, we got to, well, we, it was my wife and I and uh, Roberto Hernandez at the house, we were watching, and I, you know, Dave came up to that last target, and I'm like, there's no way he makes that mistake. We'd seen a bunch of people miss low, I'm like, there's no way Dave does this. He is too good at field, he will glass every target, no matter what, he glasses them. So he's going to know that. At the same time, you can't always trust what's happening in the target, because True. you might go, hey, those people before me just stunk it up and made a bad shot. But he's also going to understand his cuts, and he's not going to go, oh, I think it's a lot more, because it, you know, it's like, look, no, it's not a great example. It was probably going to get me in trouble. But it uh, it looks steeper than it is. Right. Because of everything else around it. Being Which flat. is trees. Yeah. Because here's the deal. you got trees in the sky. you you got a target literally suspended in the air. Yeah. Right? It's, it's worth, folks, if you haven't seen this, go to World Archery's uh, website or just go to the YouTube coverage of this thing and look at that. Tar it's a target in the air. But then I, I looked at people's bows, you know, when they're at full draw, I'm like, it's not that steep. Nope, 30-something. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have even guessed it to be that far. So I thought it's not a... No, sorry, 30-something uh, degrees. Right. I, yeah, I wouldn't have even guessed it to be that much. Yeah. But Maybe a half meter to a meter cut, maximum. Um. Yeah, if it was 30 degrees, I think the math would say it's more, but I have to look through that. It really wasn't. I, I looked at it, and I guessed a meter and a half is probably the number. Because yeah. it's not... A meter and a half might put you in the bottom of the target, depending on the velocity of your bow. Good, yeah. It's not uh, I mean, it's not far the, enough to get the, a big cut out of it. Bottom of the five ring. I, I want to say we were on a, probably a steeper target in Italy, and it was a 60 meter. So... You know, and even then I was only pulling like three and a half off. The next to last target, it actually pulled some people in because of a little bit of side hill it had going on. So particularly the bare bows and the uh, recurves with no no levels. They kind of got pulled in a little bit on that side hill. So you saw a lot of left arrows on that thing. I'm going to pull up one of my cut charts here while we're at it. But yeah. Yeah, and then the, the finals were interesting. What were the distances of the targets? Gosh, uh, we had a birdie at 15... Um, so yeah, actually, sorry, it was a birdie to start with, then 40s. Yeah, and the 40s were only at like 20 meters, right? Yeah, and then 80s, then 60 or, to yeah. finish. See, I, I like it when... Birdies were at 15. And that's a good number for the, now, birdie. the birdie. The birdie was a heck of a cut. I'm not a cut, but a heck of a of an angle, mm -hmm. down angle, right? You were basically shooting right down at it. I like to see the... Birdie at 15, I mean, especially if you have some hill, because you can get more out of a 15 than you can out of a 20, usually, yeah. given, you know, constraints of the, the range. Um, it was basically two big downhill shots, yeah. then a more or less level shot, but with a side hill, then that final cherry picker target. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like to have seen him further. When we, I'd like to have seen him. We shot, uh, when we shot... I'd like to have seen them. Yeah, you would like to have seen them. I gotcha. <laughs> I'm trying to find how I look at my 
cuts. I used to have that. So let's let's back up. Let's back up because there's probably going to be some people listening to this that have no idea what the heck we're talking about when we talk about cuts. They need to get up to speed. Yeah. When we talk about cuts, folks, what we're talking about is if you've got a target that's higher or lower than you are, you do the trigonometry distance to the target versus the actual flight of the arrow, and there's a trigonometric difference, and you use the cosine angle between you and the target to determine how much to cut off the distance. You never, ever add. Big newbie mistake is thinking you need to, you know, dial in extra distance in order to hit yeah, the target when you're shooting uphill. Because it's hard to run uphill. Yeah. But so it must be hard to shoot uphill. It's got now. nothing to do with it. You, you're always going to cut, whether you're shooting uphill or downhill, always going to cut. The question is how much. The how much is partly a factor of the velocity of your bow and the mass of your arrow, but also it's partly a factor of uh, distance from your eye to your anchor point, some other stuff going on, and it varies by distance. So, for example, obviously, if you're shooting, say, 50 meters, so I never talk about how much I cut as a matter of distance. I go percent. Yeah, I always do percentages, but I never told anyone that. Oh, did I just give away a secret of field archery? Let these people do their math and get it wrong and... We'll have the math already pre-done and get it right. But they still got to know how to figure out what it is. True. True. But yeah, all right. So we just yeah. gave away a big secret. Of- I was going to give it away too because I'm looking here and if you look at, you know, these are in yards, but 50 yards, 20 degree uphill angle is a two and a half yard cut. So that's a 5% cut. Right. Um, you know, it... it takes almost 30 degrees to hit a 10% cut. Yep. This is an exponential growth thing, so people are aware. So if you're at um, 35 meters, so I'm going to look at 40 yards here. That's the closest thing I have on this chart. Yeah, I'm going to guess that was like a 15, probably an 18 degree target, yeah. 18 to 21 at most. Anyway, point is... Yeah. It sucked, it sucked people into thinking it was more than it was. Yeah. And yeah. at the end of the day, that's what you really actually want in a field tournament. Yeah, you want to have a little bit of trickery. Yeah, a little bit of challenge, right? Some of the tricks we're talking about, folks, are, you know, uh, you can determine within half a meter, if you, if you can hold it halfway decent, what the distance is if you know the size of the target you're looking at. Yes, so some of the tricks that are played are to put a particular size target on a different size target butt than what yeah. you're accustomed to, and to hide the manufacturer label by folding the corners. They can't do that anymore. But it's back cool. in the day, they used yeah. to. And um, change right. the target sign number, target yeah. number. So yeah. you have the size of yeah. the target number. You might make it small, so it makes it look mm-hmm. like the target's bigger than it really is. Yep. You know, that was a trick that they loved to do in Eastern Europe. Is they would take a, a 60 centimeter target and make it look like it was an 80 centimeter target Put by it putting on a it on small a butt. small target butt and a small, small target, target number. number. Yeah, and uh, it would it would suck people in. You could put you could see people put arrows over the top of the entire bale. Yeah, all I got time. I got convinced at my first world field that all these tricks were going to come come up. And very first target I misfaced. I thought it was a 60 and it was an 80. My bow was lightning fast. It didn't. I shot a four, you know, I shot a four and proceeded to just aim four high at the next two and pump them in. And then 
I shot a 420 that day. So, you know, I think me, Dave, Sonder, Jesse, that's like the only guys who have done that. Yeah, which is like an A-team, by the way, of field archers. Sander Dolderman and cool Jesse Broadwater and Dave Cousins and you. Yeah, so it was still a good day, but, um, you know, not, I'm tooting my own horn a little bit there. But they got me. Right off the get-go, they got me. And then I realized they weren't going to try to get me the rest of the time. So yeah. they got me in two different ways. They also had two brands of manufacturer of Target. So I looked at the manufacturer's label on the practice range and the 80 was one and the 60 was another and i was convinced the next day they would swap that and the 60s would be the one and the 80s would be the other jvds versus kriegers that kind yeah, of yeah something like that and so i got on this very first target and i'm like oh i knew it i knew they would swap this what they had done was put a small butt up or uh you know or, i don't know if they had done that but they did do that not necessarily on that target they did do that later yeah but it's more just a convenience factor. They're lugging these targets into the woods. Sure. You know, you don't need a gigantic 80 centimeter butt for, if you didn't listen to our, if you didn't know archery and you just heard 80 centimeter butt, you'd be like, these guys, what are these guys talking about? So <laughs> anyhow, field archery, it's the best game. There should be more field archery. It's sad there's not, and there never will be. I think there will only be less field archery. You know, the trouble That's with field the, archery is that it, it has a high barrier to entry. Yeah, you got to be a good archer, and then you got to be physically adept at getting up and down hills. Keeping you got to have rate. hills to get up and down and set up a course. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, very easy to find a flat field and stick a target out in there, but but it's the most fun you yeah. can have in archery, in my opinion. Yeah, it truly is. More people should do it. It's really cool. It's a fun game. Uh, it'll test your knowledge of your bow setup, your knowledge of your your biomechanics yeah your ability to get on what i always told linda you know like hey you got to be a field archer when you're on the field course there's things are always going to be off they're never going to be exactly what you think they are so you have to be able to adapt to that and i know the first day they had shrunken targets so people were misranging them people use the target size and they use a method to uh figure out how far it is and when the targets shrink you will misrange it you'll think it's further than it is. And Dave didn't have that problem. No. So Dave knew because Dave's a field archer and he knows when there's a buttload of rain, targets will shrink when they heat up. His first world field medal was 1998, 24 years. So the guy's been at it for a long time. And, you know, guys like Jesse, guys like you, uh, you know, people who have had the experience, they, they start learning the tricks. They don't necessarily talk about them a whole lot. That's one thing about field archery that's still the thing. There's no secrets no, in any of this, but there's somewhat a little more opaque approach to some of the field stuff. Well, and you, you learn things that work for how you approach it too, because yeah. people understand what, they understand how to range. They don't understand how to range when lighting is dynamic. They yes. don't understand how to range when targets get dynamic and they don't understand how to put those two together and do quick math on the field and then have a really good instinctual approach to it as well and all of those things come together to make a field archer you know what got me on this thing was that uh they allowed coaches to use an a4 size eight and a half by 11 size block to shield the eyes of the archer from the sun saw that 
And I'm like, when I shot in the World Field Championships back in 2004, the coach wasn't even allowed on the course. Yeah, he stared right into that, son. 100%. And I was surprised to see this. It was reminiscent of 3D archers holding umbrellas for each other. I saw that during the final. I don't think there were coaches on the course during the qualification. No, but they were on the final. Yeah, and we had a coach there who just stood there. There was no umbrella holding, sun shading. Now, that A4 size thing is the largest that WA allows. But yeah. I was just surprised it was allowed to begin with. Obviously, we had to, you, know, you know, they set up the course heading into the sun. I believe it sits east to west, that yeah. little washout thing they put Correct. it in. yeah. And that's whatever, but... Um, but that's part of the game. Yeah. I brought it up because you brought up different lighting conditions. Yeah. You know, the way you see your peep if you're a compound shooter or the For way sure. you perceive your bowstring if you're a recurve shooter. They also canceled or they they postponed matches in the middle of them, which I've never seen happen. They said it's too dark to shoot. That my match in 2016, it was very dark, my last arrow. And I remember thinking like, okay, this target's in the dark. I'm standing in like this weird open spot in the trees that you know has a it was it was just weird how it was but yeah i could barely i could barely make out the yellow and my dot is like floating around in the black so i'm just like okay when i see it pass through i'll know where it is and then i can use that as a you know an indicator of (laughs) how to correct aim imagine how that would have played out back in the 80s when the target was not yellow on black it was gray on gray nice oh yeah the original target we've made improvements yeah but anyhow you know for me i was i had a pretty sizable lead going into that last target so i i didn't need to do anything special but you know it could have been for one guy it could be you know it depends on your peep setup scope setup for one guy it could have been terrible for another guy it could have been no big deal so but yeah i didn't know they would cancel or postpone a a delay a match in the middle of it. So yeah, that's, that is surprising. That's, yeah. And then the whole setup of how the matches work, I'm still not a fan of. I do not like that people get to shoot a match, come in hot, you're coming off the bench cold if you're a higher seat. I mean, just, yeah, not conducive. Not conducive to your... They changed it now so the semis happen later. Yeah. That was a mistake they made in Italy, I was the number one seed, and I had to shoot against Nico, who was like seven matches deep on the same course. So I came in on the, I've told this story before, I came in on the course I've never shot before, and he's ran through it like seven times. Yeah. And yeah, he blasted me on the first target, it was over. Um, you know, he knew it was 41 meters, not 40. I shot it for 40. So, <laughs> I think I even gave it some, because I knew it, it was. It looked long. Well, I'd watched enough people hit low, but I just assumed they sucked. So, <laughs> you know, I think I gave it 40 and a half and hit hit a five low, and, and that was the difference. Bottom line, if you like archery, field archery will make you like archery even more. Yeah, if you can shoot field archery well, you can shoot any style of archery well. A hundred percent. All right, moving on. KOA, Kings of Archery. That's only a month away as we speak right now. Yeah, it's indoor season. Um, yeah, archery, Kings of Archery. Yeah, we've still got a lot to talk about. It's still outdoor season. Let's move on to World Cup Final. Okay, go ahead. World Cup Final, right around the corner. Yeah, and the draw. Tomorrow. Yeah. We better, are we publishing this today? We are, late tonight. And I will tell you, they did the draw today. Um, so that information is out there. Uh, the draw for the World Cup Final has got 
you know, the way that they bracketed out. And if we look at the recurve men, when we look at this, we were going to have Kim Woo Jin versus Jesus Flores from Mexico, who's going to be... <laughs> he know, said in the video he wanted to shoot against him, so he's getting his wish. Yeah. And be careful what you wish for is the lesson there. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, the other cool, match, though. this match is going to be a banger. Kim Jadok versus Brady Ellison. Yeah, it's a tough one for both of them. Like, although you look at this field, like, man, I don't want to shoot against any of those guys. Then we get an Olympic rematch. Mete Gazos versus Maro Nespoli. Yep. That Neither of them have been at their peak. True. But they both were good enough to make a World Cup final. 100%. So they're going to be... They're going to be competitive. And then Marcus de Almeida versus Miguel Alvarino. And yeah. Miguel has had a great World Cup season. Miguel had a really good start to the year. Yeah. Marcus had a pretty good middle part of the year. Yep. It's going to be I don't know where either of them sit right now with their form, but, man, it's like current form matters more in recurve, I think, than, than compound. Compound, you can come in, you know, flip a coin. You might have a great day. You might not. True. Uh, recurve. It, it truly does matter, you know, how you're trending. And I don't know where they will sit. So yeah. I'm picking Kim Woo Jin to win this. But that's an easy pick. I don't know what I don't know if he's shooting his formula XD. And he was the last time I that's saw him on Instagram. It's a big change for him, too. Yeah, it's a big change. Big change. Because he's been shooting that, uh, that uh, exceed. exceed so well for so long. He's and shot some form of a gold medalist for... Years. Yeah, and Exceed basically has the same yeah, geometry as a gold medalist. Yeah, GMX and yep. gold medalist before that. Anyway, moving on, we got the recurve women, and it's going to be Choi Missoon versus Brownie Pittman. Brownie coming off a trip to Yankton. She uh, shot pretty well in Yankton, silver medal. And then you've got uh, Alejandra Valencia carrying the flag for Mexico versus Katarina Bauer of Germany. Uh, Utano Agu of Japan. She's going to be shooting against Peng Chiamao of Chinese Taipei. And then you got Kuo Tzu Ying of Chinese Taipei versus the Olympic champion An San. I, I don't have any idea how this is going to shake out, but if, uh, if I'm looking at this thing objectively, I think Choi Misun is in a position with the bracketing to do very well at this. And we're going to pause for a moment. Okay, now that the cleaning staff has moved away... So look at the photos Dean Nelberger just put up, and you can see that uh, Homie is shooting the XD. <laughs> Kim Woo-jin is shooting Kim the XD. Kim Woo-jin, XD yeah. with axial limbs on that thing. That's pretty cool. That's a big change for him. That is a big change for him. Uh, but obviously, he's been shooting it, you know, I think he's had it for, what, two weeks? Uh, Whatever. Probably... Maybe a little more than that. Uh, six, eight weeks. Oh, is it that long? Yeah. Oh, that's right. He's, he's on the short list of guys that get this stuff right away he got it probably around launch date which was the august 20th 18th yeah somewhere in there anyhow all um, right so kim Jin shooting that uh, that new bow that'll, yeah that'll so we're talking awesome. women's there brioni shooting well in yankton that yeah. might be a nice little boost in confidence i'm Plus, telling you I, I, she's fresh off the a finals appearance Exactly. So she's right into another finals appearance, like, hey, I did this last week. And she's been in the time zone for a while. That's she's been also in the time helpful. zone for a while. I assume. Where did they go after? I think they stayed in Yankton for a couple of days and then went. Just trained there. Yeah, and then went yeah, to Omaha to fly to Mexico. Good call. Yeah. I'm sure Bruce was accommodating of that. I have no doubt about that. Bruce was extremely accommodating to everybody. 
I will say this, Bruce Cull puts on good events. He does. Yeah, Bruce, Bruce, good guy. He's a get, he's a get stuff done kind of guy. Definitely. That's, uh, when, when you need things to happen, you know, like a 2021 World Championships and World Cup Final all together because there's nowhere else in the yeah. world we can do this, but Bruce you, makes it happen. But you know the secret, don't you? The really secret good. weapon is Brittany. Yeah. Brittany Solanin is actually the real force behind all of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she and her staff, of course. We're kidding. Uh, it's it's the whole machine that Bruce has built, you know, and the team that he's got. <laughs> All right. So, Compound women's. Man. Let's finish our predictions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back on the women's side. On we got to have women. predictions. I got to. All right. Like I'll, I'll, you go first. Women's side. Uh, Choi Misun and Brioni Pittman. I can't pick one there because Brioni yeah, could very well. Yeah, I said Brioni's going to do well, but in my head, I'd pick Choi Misun to win this before it just, started. Just looking at, at, at how Choi Misun normally shoots. Yeah, I, it's going to be a tough one for Brioni, but if Brioni gets past this one, Brioni gets yeah. past this one, sky's the limit. It one of whoever the left side of the bracket, I'm, and I'm looking, um, yeah, Choi and Brioni, Alejandra and Katarina. I think that's your tougher side of the bracket. Yeah, I think competitive from a competitive standpoint. I I, I watched Utano shoot at the Japan Nationals uh, earlier. You know the, the earlier in the summer. And she's got great form. She could very well get through to the semifinals. I think that uh, once she's up against An San, that's going to be a tough one. How many finals stages has she been on? Because I think it's just the one. Just the one. That's what I'm saying. The left side of the bracket. It's the experience issue. Those girls have been on a lot of final stages. An San is going to yeah. be tough. An San's going to rip through if the she's, first two matches. If she's been... She will shoot 18 arrows and win. If she's been training and she's, you know, not been too distracted by both her studies and her celebrity status, her honest-to-goodness celebrity status. Studies. You know, I mean, I don't think she can walk anywhere in Korea right now. She just can't because yeah. she's too famous. Well, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Choi Mi-soon. Okay. All right. Steve calls it for Choi Musun. That means we got to go back and uh, do this for the recurve men now. Oh, I picked Kim Woo Jin. You picked Kim Woo Jin, and I'm gonna go with either Kim Woo Jin. Can't have both Brady Ellison and Kim Woo Jin. One of them's gonna take the other out if they get this far to the semifinals. Be really interesting to see Kim Woo Jin versus Meta. We'll just leave it at that. See yeah, that would be a be a good one. It would be a good one. Compound men. We got Mike Schlusser versus Jimmy Lutz of the United States of America. That that's gonna be a tough one just out of the box. Yeah, I don't want to be either of those guys right now. Right. Because Mike is so good and Jimmy is so good and they both are they're both capable in the finals of just getting out and getting comfortable and, and railing and then uh, you know, they're both they're both dudes I like. Absolutely. I think Mike's you know, three-time winner here certainly helps. He's got the experience. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy kind of doesn't care. Like, he's got a little bit of a carefree attitude. That could help. That can help. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one. J.P. Bulsh versus Miguel Bitzera of Mexico. J.P. Bulsh of France, the big guy. I, you know, they're both very capable. I think Miguel mops him up. Okay. And he's on home soil. I, I think that might be a detriment to him, but I think he I think he beats Bulls. Then we got uh, Braden Galantine versus 
Jean Pizarro of Puerto Rico. And um, our young guy from Puerto Rico, very capable guy, but Braden, Braden's going to be a tough competitor against to, Braden to shoot is against. Always, and I've said this before on the podcast, you can go back and find it. Braden's the hardest guy to beat in match play, yeah. I think, in the entire world. Uh, Jean Pizarro, shooting very good. He's telling me he really likes his new bow. He will be. I mean, he trains with one of the best archers in the world all the time, Sarah Lopez. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he'll be. A, that'll be a competitive match. Hundred percent. Yep. And then um, Nicholas Girard of France versus the very talented young Matthias Fullerton of Denmark. I that that is that's going to be a close one, I think. I think Nico. Nico wins that one. Okay. I, I don't disagree with any of your takes on this. I think as a whole, I'm just going to fast forward ahead. Um, it's going to be Braden or Mike. I think it's Mike or Jimmy. Whoever wins that, I think, wins. It, yes. It, it, yes. If Jimmy wins that first pass, Jimmy takes it all the way. Yeah, if Jimmy wins the first one, he's just beat Mike, then he'll be like, hey, that's sweet. If Mike wins and he's got... Mike's not going to win unless he's shooting good. I yep. know that, yep. right? Um, and he's so he's got a role. He's shooting good. Then he's probably no stopping him. He's only got thirty more arrows left. Like good luck. On to the compound women. Ella Gibson versus Daphne Quintero of Mexico. Aye, that's going to be a tough one for Daphne. Yeah, uh, Daphne's had some surprises. Yes, she shot pretty good at times, but Ella is not lost a 50 meter this year or something like that Ella's got momentum she's lost she lost uh, European championship she's got momentum she's got a lot of momentum going on and I think that helps a lot I'm not counting world field because that's field yeah you can go there and struggle with whatever and have a tough time she's been a target archer for a long time and you know Alejandra Uschiano of Colombia versus Tanya Galantine of Denmark Alejandra has been a top shooter for Colombia for so long but you know, Tanya, I think will take the uh, will take that first pass. I really think that Tanya's quietly been shooting some of the best scores of anybody. She's a man quality or woman, shooter, yeah. Anywhere, yeah. And getting through Alejandra in a match will be tough. It, it's Alejandra's had some inconsistency. There, that is the truth. She's been on the upward swing this entire year. Yeah. So that's good. But Tanya's been very good this yes. whole year and no one has noticed she just hasn't had it come together for her hasn't had all the stars aligned to get a win but you know sometimes that just happens really brilliant shooter indoors as well and you know I think uh, like you say you know either one of them has the potential but I think Tanya it's going to be Tanya versus Ella and if that happens we could see Ella get beaten for the first time this season It'd be a very 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 competitive match. 100%. Uh, Lisel Yatma of Estonia versus Andrea Betzera of Mexico. I'm giving this one to Andrea, I think. Me too. And then Kim Yun-hee of Korea versus Sarah Lopez of Colombia. <sighs> Oof. Here's the thing. Everyone was talking, is it going to be Ella or Sarah? Yeah. And I said, you know, the way the draw works, it might not be able to be one or the other, right? They might, they might have to decide that between themselves in a semifinal or in an opening round. And I thought, honestly, uh, Kim Yoon-hee could sneak away with one, you know, get through on the other side of the bracket and, and come away with a win. But my 
my intuition is that Sarah's momentum coming off Columbia, smashing that bronze medal match, and like, okay, she's she's like, all right, I'm freaking back, you know. And I think she's probably totally back. I think she ends up winning the whole thing. All right, if you're right, then you're right. But I also <laughs> think that if Kim Yun Hee beats Sarah in that first pass. It's going to be Kim Yun-hee versus Ella Gibson or Tanya Galantine in the final. And all bets are off. I agree with you there. Yeah, if if Kim Kim Yun-hee beats Sarah, then she makes the gold final for sure. Yeah. Um, And all bets are off because you just don't know. Yeah, it's different. It's different. So, So, La Chicala 2022. Say it again. How do you say it? uh, Linda told me it's Tlaxcala. Tlaxcala. So what about, was there teams? Is there a team event? No, oh, this is it. They used to do a mixed team thing, right? Oh, you know what? You're right. They did do a mixed team thing. Does anyone know what that is or care what it's it is? It's not listed on this at all. So I'm thinking, no, it's not on there. I'm yeah. looking at Ian Sale right now. It's not there. No, that was just an added cost, really. Maybe like, so. Because, yeah, that's extra extra prize money or whatever. They have a new watch. Uh, I saw that. Is this a subsidiary of? Giver. No. It's an independent, family-owned, small Swiss company, but they're they're giving them the plastic version of the watch. No way. It's a forged carbon fiber. I'm sorry, but that's a... It's plastic. Yeah. And an NFT. I'm not going to comment on any more of this. <laughs> that I'm got already, a lot of internet meme traction. It, and deservedly so, because, you know, I'm just saying, deservedly so. Huh. I didn't see the thing about the watch being... You know, a digital plastic. Version. No, 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 it's not digital. It's got a, it's got a, <laughs> it's got an automatic movement in it. But it's, it's their carbon model. Hmm. So, I've told this story before, but the night before, it's not I to shot, say it's cheap. It's not cheap. Right, they're nice watches and all that, but yeah. they're not. You know, it's not an Omega. And not a Longines. Yeah. So, so the night before, I shot the gold medal final at World Field in Ireland. I went to the shopping mall to the Longines dealer to figure out which one I was going to win. <laughs> and, and you did. Yeah, I went, I'm going to go see what this watch looks like. Yeah, you know, I didn't go in and size it up or anything. No, but you know. I thought, I wonder which one of these I'm going to win tomorrow. Right. And, you know. And, you know, Longines is a nice, solid, middle-of-the-road Swiss watch. Yeah. You know? I thought there's a certain amount of alliteration, though. If you look at uh, World Archery's headline about this, they are saying, uh, Titoni named Timekeeper for Tlaxcala. <laughs> Titoni, Timekeeper, and Tlaxcala. Yeah, I'm thinking that uh, they, they might have written that on purpose that way. Chris Wells wrote that. I, I, I bet you Chris threw that in there like that. But hey, you know what? Good on them for for having a uh, another Swiss watchmaker as a sponsor. I think that's that's fine. Much better than having some Chinese watchmaker or something. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could have taken that route. They could have. But you know what? It probably would have looked a lot the same as the one they are getting. It would have been Alex. Moving on. All right. You <laughs> might want to take that part out. You think? The part where we said, hey, it'll look a lot <laughs> like the one they're going to get. Yeah. Probably okay. You're going to bleep it or you're going to. But not the part that I just said. I didn't say that. <laughs> Effectively. Well, okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll consider editing it out. Uh, are you still recording? Yes, I am. I, I paused.
<sighs> All right. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't have said that, huh? <laughs> yeah. Are you going to bleep it or are you going to edit it out? I'm going to edit it out because I don't want to I don't want to offend anybody that doesn't deserve to be offended. You only want to offend those who deserve it. Absolutely. Yes. That's a whole separate ball game though. But it's a strategy. It is. So, yeah, I think we covered everything on our list. Yeah, I felt like there was something else we wanted to podcast about. It may have come you had you had some inspiration for wanting to talk about something. I think I was annoyed by world field coverage. Well, <laughs> I was going to blow you off. I was going to be like, dude, you were all over the board. <laughs> you were like, on one of them, you were like, oh, they need a six to win. And I'm like, no, they've already won. Or they need a paper to win. Need a paper to win. I was like, no, they don't need to hit anything. They win. And then I realized you can't see anything of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So you're like, I don't know what's on the board, you know? No, well, there's no I, scoreboard either. Yeah, you so. couldn't see anything. Yeah. So. Kind of trying to do the math in my head and, yeah, you know. You had a nice post on social media kind of eviscerating the whole scenario. I did. I, I read that and I went, yeah, I better not, uh, better not chirp him about this. No, I'd be happy to have you do that. Well, at least I, at I, least I, I know somebody jest. was paying attention. I only do it in jest. I know. But it's all good. You know I don't take this stuff personally except for the fact that it really irritates me when something can be good. And it is not. And it is not for no good reason. Yeah, I've been saying that about events the last couple of years. Like, you know, when we were on an upward trajectory in the sport and participation was growing and people wanted to see it grow more, they really tried hard. And then as we kind of peaked, you know, Vegas got to its biggest it's ever been and then it went the other way it was just like you know that kind of was every organization i'm not saying this is just vegas but eventually they had no no problem getting people to sign up i mean usa archery was turning people away which is the stupidest thing in the world you know and they're only hosting like 600 people and they're like oh no too many um at that point events just started going backwards in my opinion you know we we went from it's enough to host an event to like, hey, maybe we try to broadcast this. And then it was like, well, a couple of cell phone videos or whatever, you know, don't really worry about it. And then we, we've lost focus on things that are the most important part of the event from a spectator standpoint, which is the finals. And to not have a good broadcast in the finals, the stuff that people will see, that's just disappointing. And I've seen that. It's not just a world archery thing. It's everybody's stuff this year. Everybody's stuff, I thought, needed improvement. Well, I believe that uh, part of fixing something is being part of the solution. So I just complain. Well, no, because I think that, you know, <laughs> all joking aside, people do listen to this podcast and maybe they'll take it in the correct spirit. Yeah, and you know what? I shouldn't paint with a broad brush and say everybody's stuff is bad. I just didn't want to, like blatantly point out a few because there were a few that are really good you know Lancaster's broadcast great yeah they do a really good job they continually they they practice Kaizen right continuous improvement a little bit of that yeah Um, for sure others have gone yeah we're good enough whatever they check in a box and, and nothing more and that's the issue because you know what you have all these people you got Bruce Cull first off losing money on this event you have still a full up event decorated stands for the athletes stands for the um, spectators the, 
you know, some real thought and effort put into it, a banquet for the athletes afterward, a whole bunch of effort on, on the part of, you know how many volunteers are involved in one of these things? I mean, dozens and dozens of volunteers. And at the end of the day, it's let down by stuff like not setting it up so the damned announcer can see the targets. Right. Like, you want to have an event that is worth spectating, you got to make that stuff. Like, that. that's a... Uh, there's no compromise there. That must be done. Just saying. Yeah. They should have trotted you out on the field. I mean, I see those early photos you shared of some of the Olympics, and you're standing there behind them. You know, like you're standing there in a... Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that's necessary, but you can set something up so you can be. be, I can be off on the side and see perfectly well. I cannot be behind the target on the opposite side of where the archer is shooting, looking at it sideways, (laughs) literally, (laughs) and calling arrows. Can't be done. Cannot be done. If the cameras aren't on the targets, which they weren't. So, there you go. And, I, you know, I, I doubt... I mean, I certainly wasn't their first choice for this event. You know, uh, the person that they wanted to do this job pulled out at the last minute, so I got the call from Bruce. Maybe that person heard that the announcing booth was going to be behind the targets. Well, if they were smart, that's what they would have. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, this part of the podcast probably going to cut out too, but you know what? I, I, I really regret the fact that... This could have been so much better. That's all. Takes away from takes away from some of the the winners. It uh, takes away from the hard work of you know all those volunteers and prior. Bruce and all those people. Yeah, yeah. You got five days prior of archers going. Yeah, this is a really cool course, and they did a good job. And then you know now the the crowning of the jewel, the broadcast for the world to see, is uh, compromised. No, I did not see that. More stuff to be cut out of the podcast. You're going to have a heck of a time editing this and having it published tonight. It's a good thing that I'm good at this. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Got any big plans for the weekend? Just packing for Japan. Mm. When do you fly out? Flying out early Sunday morning. Okay. So, you know, tomorrow I pack my bag, then I unpack my bag, get rid of half the stuff, and then repack my bag. That's my strategy for going to Japan. I just pack it once and go. That's me personally. You uh, flying through Seattle? Yeah. Flying through Seattle. Hmm. What time are you going to be in Seattle? i got to look. Probably about 10 o'clock in the morning. <sighs> right at the time when they start putting out that clam chowder. Oh, yeah. You haven't been there in a while, have you? No. You know, I have not been in the Delta Lounge in Seattle for yeah. a while. Delta Sky Club in Seattle, very nice. Best clam chowder in the world. It is. It's great. Unless you go to Anthony's in Boston. Put it up against anything. Yeah, you know what? You're not wrong. Anyhow, so then you're going over to Tokyo. Going to Tokyo. Then it's in Tokyo, this event you're doing, or are you training somewhere else? Um, actually, we're going to we're gonna have a couple seminars um, for Shibuya Archery and some of their consumers and uh, some coaches and stuff. Got some meetings with some of the powers that be. Um, headed down to Osaka to meet with one of our customers, Hasco. One of our long-time, yeah. long-time uh, partners there. And then uh, Nationals to wrap up. Are you going to... Or wait, what's the situation? Do you have to have COVID tests, all that? Nope. I had to register with their smartphone app. 
and I have the blue screen, which is a good thing in the case of the smartphone app, because I, you know, fully vaccinated, and as of today is uh, what is today? Uh, what is today? Today's October fourteenth. October fourteenth. As of the eleventh, uh, they finally reopened the country with no need for a pre-travel COVID test from the United States. Mm-hmm. So since I'm fully vaccinated, I just have to mask up on the flight. That's the only. Ugh. Yeah. We'll have fun with that. Always. You know, when you have a face like mine, masking up's not so bad. <laughs> huh. Well, what, uh, so you're going to miss, you're going to miss Recurve Sunday then. I'm going to miss Recurve Sunday. You might be able to catch bits and pieces of it. Yeah, I don't maybe. know when they actually start. I'll have to see whether this flight's got proper streaming Wi-Fi available or not. Probably not. It's Delta, so probably not. They've really upped their game there. Have they? Upped their game. How many people do you think are still listening at this point? At this point, a surprising number. (sighs) Only because like they're they're working or something, and they're this is just playing in the background. They've quit listening. Or you know another reason they're still streaming. They're not listening. I've discovered recently another reason why they could continue to be listening. Apple has set things up. If you activate do not disturb while you're driving, it makes it almost impossible to use any controls to stop or start a podcast. So they're just listening by force. Exactly. So we've gone on for some 50 minutes or so. Correct. Should we just keep going for a while longer in case someone's on a road trip and they aren't willing to reach down and... There's probably 4% of our listeners out there that would not mind if we kept going. I have literally, it's a Friday afternoon, I've literally ran out of things to talk about. But wait, there's more. I got to sit down with Easton President Aaron Lucky recently, and I thought you might enjoy hearing what he's got to say about the Easton business and some other stuff. I can't believe Easton is finally in the beer business. It's about time. I've been pushing for that ever since I started with the company. And uh, you keep at it long enough, eventually that innovation comes. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know what we're talking about, the uh, it's actually Greg, I guess, who uh, commissioned having a Belgian blonde beer uh, style. I, I need mm-hmm. to point out Belgian style because all my Belgian friends will be on me like you wouldn't believe if I say it was a Belgian beer and it isn't an actual Belgian beer. I I put this up on social media. I said, after 100 years, Easton has finally come up with an application for aluminum that does not involve (laughs) seismometers on the moon, the arrow that has won every Olympic Games since 1972, baseball bats that have won all the college and Little League World Series, hockey sticks that have scored more goals than any other in the NHL. All of those things at Easton Aluminum Products, now it's in a beer can. All right. Well, I I didn't uh, check the specs on the can, but uh, the contents were delicious. They were. They were really good. (laughs) So, yeah, that that was a great commemoration, I think, for the employees, the people on the floor, the people making the stuff behind the wall that we're sitting next to right now. You know, I'm here in your office. Yeah. And literally right across the wall from here are machines making arrows and you know depending on the time of day you can actually hear them right through the wall and um, every single arrow that leaves this building has got a person behind it It was kind of a point I was making with uh, with Greg and with Darren too you know it's 
it's it's really a people business you're in. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was grateful for the turnout. We had a high level of participation, and uh, boy, did uh, Greg roll out the red carpet. What what a what a bash. You know what struck me? Um, I started with a company in 1991 in Van Nuys, California. There are people that attended that party that are working here today that were working at Easton, that were longtime Easton people. When I started in Van Nuys in 91, and they're up here working today here in Salt Lake City, doing jobs that are maybe one of a kind in some cases. Absolutely, yep. And they have enough love for what they do and for the product they make and passion for it that they have been in the company for 40 years or more. We've got several employees that are that are either have have hit the 40-year mark or are very close and will within a year. You just don't see that in a lot of places these days, right? I mean, you know, you read about, um, I, I saw some statistic the other day. It said millennials expect to change their job every year and a half or something like that. Well, I think we're getting a pretty uh, firsthand view to that right now in, in many areas of the company. But, sure. uh but you know, you know I'm, I'm getting close to 20 here and uh, have every intention of making it to 40. So I, yeah. I can certainly uh, relate on the, the reasons to stay. And, you know, the, the, the Easton family just treats its, its people so well. And uh, we, we recognize that, you know, while we're you know, striving to make innovative products and more efficient processes and, you know, all those kind of things, it, it's not those that make a company. It's most certainly the people. Yeah. And, you know, the other point that we've made in the past is, you know, the Made in USA thing and the vertical integration in this factory are a couple of things that are still very core to the experience. To oh, the- that, that's something I'm incredibly proud of. Um, you know, our, our vice president of manufacturing, Clay Henderson, um, has a saying that I just love that, you know, every day when we come to work, we've got to earn the right to be a, a Made in the USA manufacturer. And, uh, and he's absolutely right. And that's something we, we strive to do every day. Yeah. And, and you know. That is very clearly one of the things that I believe separates this company from, well, certainly in the aero business, all other companies right now. Easton is the only company in the United States making any kind of volume. I mean, there's a couple of very small companies making some arrows, but um, making any volume of arrows and an arrow for everyone, you know. And that arrow for everyone philosophy continues today, even though sometimes it's not easy to do. Sure, we we want to take the whole ride with you from the from the first arrow you shoot, uh, you know, throughout throughout your whole archery career. You know, um, consider the something like the Genesis arrow, you know, the, the humble eighteen twenty Genesis. Absolutely, right? an awful lot of those things get shot by an awful lot of kids every year here in the United States and in Canada and some other countries now. I'd have to check this to be absolutely sure, but I'm pretty convinced shooting from the hip, we've made more of those this year than in any other year in the yeah. company history. So. And that's a big number. We're not going to, we don't talk numbers, but I will tell you that, folks, that's a big number. And it's, an, it's a mind boggling number. Yeah. Right? And what, mean, what's clear is that kept going while schools were shut down. And so that, that arrow is being used. I'm, I'm quite confident, fairly regularly outside of the NASP program itself. I mean, it's just a great all-around arrow for um, for beginner archers. Yeah, it's, it's tough, and it's durable, and it's affordable, and it's made 50 feet from where we're sitting. That's correct. Along with a bunch of other stuff. We have um, every arrow in the Easton portfolio 
is having some value added done within 150, 200 feet of where we're sitting right now. Um, some arrows are, you know, very small number, probably something on the order of 4% of the arrows that you sell by volume are made overseas, but 96 or more percent from my understanding start right here in this factory. You're directionally correct. I, I don't have the math in front of me, but that's, uh, you know, first and foremost, we always try to make it here. There's a few places where that just doesn't make sense in terms of value to the consumer. Um, and so we very reluctantly uh, compromise in those situations. But our, our mentality is always, um, let's make it here. Well, well, you got one popular arrow that was uh, available a couple of years ago that you're replacing with a completely made in Easton arrow. Um, in the next uh, few weeks. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's going to be announced uh, in October. Sure. Yeah, we're and excited to. We're not going to. We're not going to go any further than that. <laughs> I promise. But you know, it's a, it's an arrow that is super popular, and you're giving people what they want, and that's one of the keys too. Aaron is the company gives people what they want. You listen to your customers, whether that's dealers or people in a tree stand. Um, you, and, and the other thing to consider is you are a participant yourself, which you know, leading from the top. You've been in the tree stand. You've been at target tournaments. You've, you know, you're you're a archery enthusiast yourself. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Love to shoot. And whenever we get feedback, we we certainly take that into consideration. And if uh, you know if we think there's market demand for a product, that we'll we'll certainly try to accommodate that. But you know, in kind of reflecting on the hundred year history, um, I think some of the great successes is when Easton gave gave the market something they didn't know to ask for. Right. Um, and, and that's when you really, you know, move move the needle. So many things like that. You know, the full metal jacket arrow in the bow hunting space. Um, arrows that are set up with, uh, you know, tapers for the purpose of better tuning out of a compound bow. Arrows that have innovative component systems. Yeah. Very few of those things were asked for. You know, who else used to do that? It was a guy named Steve Jobs. Yeah. Steve Jobs was famous for figuring out what the market needed. He didn't wait for people to tell him what they wanted. You know, it was a little bit like Henry Ford once said, if I waited for my customers to tell me what they wanted, we'd just be making a faster horse. Yeah. Well, one thing I've really appreciated about the 100-year anniversary is the the Easton family and a a lot of the Easton employees, you know, took the trouble to try to go back and, and write a history book of, you know, the company's legacy over this past 100 years. Um, I'm I'm nearly through it. Um, great job, George. By the way, I know you had a uh, quite a heavy involvement in that. I had a little bit of input, but uh, you know, the, Greg and his team hired a professional author. Yeah. Um, and I had put a manuscript together back in 2014 through 16, and a lot of that ended up in this work. Yeah. But um, it took a real author to really put this thing together. And I'm glad you pulled it around to this subject because... Well, let me... Uh, the, the reason I brought it up yeah. was there, the, the story of the Axis Arrow I, I read today. And, you know, the way that was framed. And you would have been in a position to corroborate the authenticity of this story. It's very consistent with everything I've heard. But, you know, the direction at the time was bigger diameter, lighter, faster. And the Axis Arrow did the opposite of all of those things, and I'm fairly convinced that's the most popular hunting arrow today. It is. Um, at, you know, 18 years after its launch, which yeah. is quite a run in any sporting goods equipment um, it example really is. you could think of. <laughs> and similarly, the X-10 did the same kind of reverse move on the market. The Absolutely. market was trying to go lighter, 
and lighter and lighter. And we understood through our research and development, something that Jim Easton really believed in putting a lot of effort into, that R&D showed us that we would actually have a better match to recurve bows if we had a heavier arrow. Mm -hmm. And not just heavier, but strategically heavier. Lighter at the ends, heavier in the middle. And that is what bore the design of the X-10, which we first tested at the Barcelona Olympic Games conceptually, 1992, mm. where we built a heavy version of an ACE arrow. And it was used by top archers at that event to very good effect. We realized that the one more thing we could do to make it even better was to make it even smaller. And so we married up the idea of a heavier arrow shaft with a better frequency match to the bow to a smaller diameter, more wind effective arrow and since 1996 when it was introduced at those Olympic Games in Atlanta it's won every Olympic Games. That's right, still going strong. Same philosophy as the Eastern Axis arrow. And so micro diameter is one of those innovations. A lot of people don't realize this but you know Easton has actually paid royalties by companies out there for the patent that they have on certain aspects of these designs. Yeah. And you know, uh, that innovation, that spirit of innovation, is something that you see throughout that 100-year anniversary book. 100%. It's just part of the founding ethos of the company. Speaking of the 100th anniversary book, it's time to give away two more copies. We're going to do right. that in a couple of minutes. So, stay tuned, because coming up in about three minutes on the show, Greg Easton is going to give away two signed copies to two more listeners here on the podcast. Well, Aaron, you know, year 101 is about to begin. Really, you know, we're, we're counting off the calendar year. We don't have a specific date when sure. we say, yep. you know. Um, but I kind of view the party as that turning point a little into, bit. into 101 for right or wrong. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree, right? So here we are. This is year 101, the, the first new century of Easton, and you're at the helm of the company. What's your philosophy going forward? Do you want to maintain what we're doing, keeping that innovation here in the United States and doing our best to continue to make products here? Oh, absolutely. We, we intend to keep the, the train rolling on the tracks. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's certainly when you look back at the last hundred years, I mean, it's, it's incredibly humbling and in some ways intimidating that, oh my, oh my goodness, how, how would they have turned the keys <laughs> to the, to this car over to me? But, uh, you know, as I as I read through the hundred year book, and I, I never had the pleasure of, of really speaking with Jim personally, but I, I am impressed that some of the things that that he found important and foundational that that spirit of innovation and you know obsolete your own products or somebody else will, and that that gives me a satisfying feeling knowing hey we're we're still moving down that, yeah. that same path. And all these phenomenal products that uh, we just kind of talked about, you know, Axis, FMJ, X10, you know, we are actively working on, you know, what the next version or the next best thing in those spaces is going to be. And we, and we, may, we may not succeed at those right away, um, but we will eventually. Absolutely. And, you know, I sure appreciate the, uh, the spirit of the company giving us that freedom and that license to, to fail, if you will, um, for a worthy cause. And so um, it's made it a lot of fun and it gives us that creative space and allows for innovation. And, uh, and I believe good things will, will come from that. You know, not once did Jim Easton ever tell me when I worked for him, 
that, uh, oh, you don't want to do that because it'll obsolete something we're currently making. No, his goal was to do it to himself before somebody else did it to him. Right. And Greg carried that over. That's why with Greg, you know, running the place at the time, Axis was developed. Think about it. The company was still heavily into aluminum arrows as a bonding product at the time. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, you know, some of these concepts we don't necessarily overtly talk about or there's no directive of here's here's the innovation chart or no, it's or anything like that. It, it's just so built into the company's DNA right. that I'm not sure I could turn it around if I wanted to. <laughs> That's a very good point, right? It is. And that DNA was built by Doug Easton and Jim Easton and Greg Easton. And now with you at the helm, continuing along those lines, you got good people working for you, guys like Clint, you know, and and um, I have fantastic a long list of people for me. And that's the thing, right? It's a team effort. That's everything. Yep. And you know what was really nice, just to take it full circle to our beginning of our discussion, seeing those that team in one place at the same time, really put an exclamation point on it for me. This is a people business that we're in. Yeah, a lot of fun. And, and for me, it was, uh, you know, some of the faces I hadn't seen in a little while. Greg was nice enough to invite, you know, some people that yeah, folks made that big contributions, but were, you know, through retirement or, or whatever else are no longer with the company. And, and many of them still showed up and, and were welcome. It was just, it, yeah. it was a lot of fun. It really everybody. was, you know. And, Including uh, yourself, sir. Yeah, thanks. I was <laughs> privileged to be there. So, yeah, you look at this from that perspective and you go, all right, this is where the company is headed for the next 100 years, pretty much doing what it's been doing for 100 years, Mm -hmm. obsoleting its own products, advancing Archery's legacy, giving you, a consumer listening to this podcast right now, something you didn't know you needed. And I say needed, not wanted, Mm -hmm. but needed. And providing for a stable and reliable production here in the United States where... Yeah, it's not easy to find labor sometimes, and a certain amount of stuff has to be automated to make the company competitive with uh, offshore interests. But at the end of the day, you're getting the highest quality and the best value that you can get from just about any sporting goods item out there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what we're striving for, and that's what we're coming to work to do every day, and, and that's what drives us. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, not only myself, but you know, a high percentage of the staff here are, you know, use the equipment and, uh, you know, are passionate archers in one way or another. Um, certainly a huge outdoor culture. So, you know, just all those things that surround our sport and, and being outdoors and good stewards of habitats and environment and making sure that we've got places to shoot and game to hunt and um, all of those things that just, you know, it, it, it really does make me proud to be, to be a small part of that. And you know, it occurs to me uh, as we wrap this up, there are always opportunities for uh, a career here at Easton. And so you can go to the Easton Archery website, which is Mm eastonarchery.com. If you're listening to the podcast right now, if you're enough of an archery enthusiast to actually be listening to this podcast, (laughs) you might be an ideal candidate. If If you like archery, the outdoors, a culture of, I'm gonna call it a relaxed culture, not because, okay, everybody here works hard, but they also play pretty hard. And I think if you're really an archer and you really love the sport, can't think of a better place to work. Yeah. Well, what I like to think of it is an, an empowering culture. And, you know, we want to utilize people's intellect, you know, and put them in a position where, you know, you talked about automation a little bit. And, you know, we've not lost one job to 
innovation or to automation. Right. However, you know, a lot of people that were doing what I'd call you know basic routine functions that were very repetitive are now doing something that hopefully is a little more intellectually challenging, and and gives us the benefit of of what they've got in their head and that knowledge and a better way to do things. Yeah. Because great ideas come from everywhere, including you know your people that are working on the floor and, and in the production setting. Many times they have the very best ideas and and know the systems and processes far better than someone like me. One hundred percent. You know when when I designed arrows for Easton. One thing I did appreciate, I wasn't the brightest guy in the world, but I did appreciate the fact that it took those people to make that stuff. And so I always made sure that I treated those people as well as I could because I knew at the end of the day they could make or break a new design. <laughs> and, uh, and, and typically, they'd get 100% behind what you wanted them to do and get it done, figure out ways to do things that you couldn't figure out because you hadn't been standing there for you know, 40 hours a week or whatever running a particular process or running a particular piece of equipment, listening to those people, those people have value. And that is one of the things that Jim Easton always did, that Greg Easton always did, and that you do, is go out there, talk to the people on the floor, get their ideas and implement them because they know better than some manager sitting in a yep. That's know, very true. And somewhere. there's hundreds of examples where we've incorporated that and, and we're much the better for it. And so in my opinion, that's another thing that makes it a great place to work. I want you to... I want you to, I want, I'm going to edit this, <laughs> or not. <laughs> I want to thank you for taking the time, Aaron. Um, you know, it's a really great thing that so many people have a chance to get an inside look at what we're doing under this roof at Easton, and uh, just taking the time to do it. Really oh, you bet, it. you bet. We're proud of what we do. We love to show it off, so thank you, George. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. You know, we... Uh, started my career working together at Hoyt yeah. I came over to Easton at the same time so I, I feel like we've got a, a long history as well and uh, we do pre- appreciate and, you my friend and you're speaking to me in spite of it <laughs> that goes both ways <laughs> now time for another one of our Easton 100th anniversary book giveaways and here is Greg Easton to announce the winners well hi George I'm glad to be here to do this it's so exciting those folks put in their emails for us so we have uh, two winners for this show. Uh, first one is Joe McGlynn. Joe, congratulations. We've sent in a book out to you. And the second one is Robert Holder. So we'll get those books out to you as soon as we can. Awesome. Joe McGlynn, Robert Holder. Those books are on the way. <laughs>